the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Brendan Kerner is an amazingly talented writer, a contributing editor at Wired Magazine, former columnist for the New York Times, Slate, and ESPN, the magazine. He's the author of Now the Hell Will Start and The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Brendan Kerner. All right, Brendan, I want to start with, I really loved your book, but I have two big complaints about it. Mm -hmm. The first is obviously D.B. Cooper is only six sentences in your book pretty pretty brief yes <laughs> pretty brief my other complaint is i got the audiobook because i i drive around quite a bit mm-hmm. and you did not read it no why is that um i i don't think you'd want me to read it i'm definitely not a professional voice actor so i feel that the the best decision was to have someone who does this for a living to read it um, I will say it was not presented to me as an option for me to read it. Um, basically, the publisher who arranged that deal, you know, they con- they work with the audiobook uh, provider, and they basically gave me a couple of uh, potential candidates to do the recording. Um, so it was never on the table for me to do it. I think they always wanted a a pro to do it, um, and ultimately that probably was the best choice. I feel that people who grow weary of my voice over eighty five thousand words. I don't know, but they're your words, though. That is true, and um, it is it is a little strange to to know that you know someone else is interpreting it, uh, doing it their own, bringing their own uh, ideas uh, to the characters and to the situations and all of that. But ultimately, I think um, performance is really key to audiobooks, and I feel that people who do it for a living, you know, they they do have the training and the kind of acting chops and performance chops to do it. Whereas I'm someone who that's that's not what I do. I'm much more comfortable here but here behind my keyboard. I'm sure you also dread the idea of reading your book aloud for 16 18 hours, right? Well, it's interesting because even doing readings, you know, public readings while on the publicity circuit for the book, even doing those very brief readings, I I kind of dread doing them and at some point in the cycle of doing public events, I kind of just stopped actually reading from the book and just started doing like slideshows and presentations where I just talked about the general concepts and characters. But, you know, just reading passages, it, it is pretty, uh, pretty harrowing uh, for an author, I think. Yeah, and I could definitely see it getting old. I mean, you don't want to read aloud what you wrote a million times. No, definitely not. And I... I think like a lot of authors, I never really crack open my books once I finish them. Um, so you, re- you know, you read them a million times, you know, every day for, for months and months and even years. And then once it comes out into the world, I, I really 
never revisit those pages. The book The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. What what got you onto the story of Roger Holder and, and, and Kathy Kirko? Yeah, so um, I remember the moment, actually. I was um, reading the New York Times Metro section. Um, and there was a very small, like 600 word item about a man named Luis Armando Peña Sotron. And in 1968, uh, he had been living in the Bronx. Um, and he actually had a, a young daughter. I think she was maybe one year old, one year old at the time in 1968. And he was very involved in the Puerto Rican liberation movement, um, uh, Puerto Rican independence movement. And he and a couple of comrades in 1968 hijacked a plane to Cuba um, as part of an action to bring uh, attention to their political struggle. Um, and he ended up uh, living there and basically reinventing himself and having a life down there and, you know, lived there for the next, you know, something like 41, 42 years. And what this story was about was the fact that kind of without warning almost, he had decided to return to the United States. And he had taken a circuitous route, an air route, but he eventually got to JFK Airport. And really the moment he got off the plane, he had been arrested. And this is a man now at this point, I think he was about 65, 66 years old. Um, and he was arrested and, and was charged with air piracy. And what struck me about this piece, which really didn't go into many details, um, that was about the extent of it what I just told you, was the fact that this just seemed like such a fantastic crime that someone could hijack a plane um, and basically get away with it for more than four decades. And this was a crime I'd never heard of before. And that surprised me. And so I kind of started looking into, you know, are there other uh, hijackings in American history that, you know, where the perpetrators have not faced justice? And it turns out there were there were several. There were many. Um, a lot of them involved people who did go off into Cuba, but all to other countries as well, and just never returned to the U.S. and ended up becoming uh, exiles and fugitives. And in researching that, um, you know, almost all the people that were on that list of fugitive hijackers from the United States were men. And when I kind of came to the list and there was a woman's name, uh, Catherine Marie Kirkow, um, I stopped and I was like, well, this is interesting. This is something that's a little different on here. She's, the, I think, the only woman I saw on here. And as I kind of dug into her past, I was, well, thinking like, what, what was this woman's motive? Why did she do this? Why did she do this kind of crazy uh, thing where, you know, she and someone else hijacked a plane to a different country? And that really started, you know, my obsession with the story at the heart of the skies belong to us. Well, you definitely went deep in it. One thing I really noticed in your book was the the level of detail you had on like some mundane things they were doing. Like, oh, we went out to breakfast and she had pancakes and right. and he had sausage. And it's like, wow. As someone who sort of investigates something, I know like that you talked to someone and they told you that. You yes. compiled all this information over years and years. Yeah. And you did an incredible job telling that story. Uh, I enjoyed going on that, the ride of that couple mm -hmm. with you. And uh, I mean, fantastic book. I would highly recommend it to anyone.
Yeah, thank you. No, I, I, as you know, like, you know, a big uh, part of my research was getting in touch with primary sources, um, people that were actually uh, eyewitnesses and people directly involved in the events uh, that form the main narrative of the book, which is about this young couple, Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko, who hijacked this plane. Um, and in the course of my research, I actually found out that Roger Holder was still alive and was uh, very fortunately able to interview him at some length um, and get a lot of those details about his relationship uh, with Kathy. Yeah. And you did a great job telling that too. I mean, when you talked about how like the expression on his face changed Mm -hmm. uh, when you asked him sort of the motivation behind the hijacking and how he joked that he didn't uh, kill Kathy and shove her in a closet or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like when you met up with him? Um, so the first time, uh, I was definitely a little nervous, a little apprehensive. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. We'd spoken on the phone several times prior to that, but, you know, it was a powerful moment, um, going to, you know, see someone face to face to go to his home. We, we met at his, um, apartment in San Diego and, um, I do remember parking my car about a block away and, and walking up and it's a kind of a, a, a you know, low rise stucco apartment building. And uh, to get in the, you know, the, the gate was just kind of like an iron gate, uh, kind of like on a side passageway. And I rang his buzzer and then I kind of noticed that the gate was actually unlocked. Um, it was actually a little bit ajar and I kind of gave it a little push. And as it kind of swung open, I noticed him coming around the corner and I just noticed the first way he was dressed. He was dressed in a really striking, really stylish way. Um, Very tall, uh, lanky, lean guy uh, wearing tight jeans and and, and these pretty cool cowboy boots and like a purple dress shirt that was unbuttoned kind of to the sternum. And uh, I was nervous and I remember that you know, I had to kind of stammer an explanation as to why I had opened his gate, <laughs> um, you know, because obviously he was coming to manually <laughs> open it. And and I, I was like, well, this seems weird that I'm kind of like, you know, breaking into his apartment complex. And I, I kind of stammered out some explanation, like, sorry, it was like, I just kind of gave it a little push and it opened. And, and he kind of looked at the gate for a second. And then he looked at me and I, his first words to me were basically were like, well, you don't look like a burglar. And he just kind of beckoned me into the apartment. And I realized like that kind of diffused a lot of the tension of the moment. And I really realized that we were going to have a rapport and that we were going to get along and be able to have a pretty deep, a series of deep conversations about the central events of his kind of fantastic life. It was definitely a fantastic life. I mean, the whole Algeria Black Panthers story, Mm -hmm. it's wild. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's um, one of the things that really attracted the, me to the story is that what makes the hijacking unusual that he and Kathy Kirko were involved in is not just the fact that, you know, they basically were able to uh, escape justice for so long, but it's um, the characters and situations they found themselves in. And, you know, they did hijack a plane essentially from Los Angeles was the point of origin for the flight. Um all the way to Algiers. And at that time, you know, as I tell people who don't know much about Algerian history, which is most folks, um, Algeria at that point was a very anti-American, revolutionary socialist country. Um, 
you know, just about a dozen years removed from this horrendous, bloody civil war, uh, not civil war, excuse me, war of independence, uh, in which they were able to liberate themselves from French colonial rule. And uh, were, were very anti-Western uh, as a result. And the way that they thumbed their nose at the world was by often inviting revolutionary groups to set up shop in Algiers and would give them buildings and, and all that, uh, places where they could set up, have headquarters. The Viet Cong had, a, had a, a villa there in Algiers. And so did these Black Panthers who were in exile, um, notably Eldridge Cleaver, um, the, the very celebrated author of Soul on Ice, was then uh, on the lam, had been charged with attempted murder in the U.S. and had come to head this kind of commune of Black Panther fugitives and exiles in Algiers. And, you know, Kathy and Roger, who were not really politically involved in the U.S., you know, fell in with them and ended up living with Eldridge Cleaver and and these Black Panthers uh, for a time in, in 19, uh, 1972 in Algiers. So it really is just an incredible uh, kind of situation they found themselves in and almost stumbled their way into. Yes, stumbled their way into it. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. All right, here's the big question. Do you think Kathy is still alive? So a lot of people ask me this, and you know, I have done some additional reporting on this in the years since. So it's hard for me to put a percentage chance on this. Um, I will say that it would not surprise me at all if she had passed away quite some time ago, in that she was obviously living a, a risky lifestyle. She was consorting with some people who were somewhat dangerous and certainly reckless. And um, it would explain a lot about why she never reached out to people again in the U.S. And I did a lot of due diligence to make sure that was the case, um, doing a lot of FOIA requests and, and talking to people that she grew up with. Um, and I came away very well convinced, as did the FBI in some notes that I saw, that she never actually did reach back to people in the U.S. after 1972. Um, so I would say that the, my, my, my head says she probably passed away quite young or, or relatively young, but my heart really wants to believe that she sees the opportunity to reinvent herself and, and to strike out and forge a new life for herself. So, you know, a, a big part of my, the romantic part of my soul, you know, does pine for, you know, answering the phone at 3am and it's Kathy Kirko saying that she is had read my book. Uh, in, in her house in France or Switzerland or where, what have you, um, and has a bone to pick with me, perhaps. But, you know, it, it really is, there are certain unknowable parts of her story, um, and, and that was a challenge for me in writing the book, certainly. But yeah, I, th I guess the head says she, she passed away and the heart says she's still with us. I think that's well said, because I, I often fantasize that D.B. Cooper was reading all these books written about him. So mm -hmm. I definitely understand you wanting to think that she read your book, you know, at some villa in France or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I do know one thing I do know is that members of her family certainly read the book um, here in the United States. And um, I, I do feel that at least what I've been told by people who were part of that extended family, that it did at least get them talking again about, about Kathy and, Kathy's role in their lives. And, and so I think that's a, a positive outcome um, to, to help a family to some extent that uh, has the central tragedy and mystery as, as part of its story. One thing you talk about in your book quite often, uh, and the main reason I asked you on the show is 
airport security. Mm-hmm. What was going on with airport security in in the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, to me, this was one of the most um, surprising revelations uh, in doing the research for this book. Is that there really wasn't much of any airport security uh, throughout those years, and that uh, certainly up until you know January nineteen seventy three, there was no such thing as like universal physical screening of passengers. Um, not everyone had to put their bag through an X-ray machine. Not everyone had to pass through a metal detector. Uh, for a large part of this, what I refer to in the book as the golden age of, of, of hijacking, which is this 1961 and 1972 period, um, very few people were physically screened prior to getting on American commercial flights. Um, for a large chunk of that, there really was no screening at all. Basically, unless you really, really looked like you were going to cause some mayhem, um, no one conducted any kind of screening of passengers. Over time, towards the end of the, the 60s, um, there was the institution of a behavioral screening tool. Um, basically, what that was, there was a psychologist uh, named John Daly who worked for the FAA. And he basically came up with a checklist um, of behaviors uh, that could be indicative of someone who was planning to uh, carry out a hijacking. And what was done was, you know, the ticket agents who, you know, printed out boarding passes and handed them to passengers, they were charged with learning these behavioral cues. And then if someone, you know, hit any of these cues, then they would alert a security officer who would then ask, one of these passengers to come to the side and they would manually look through their 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 bag or or you know check them for weapons um seems like a foolproof plan yeah well you know i mean the behavioral cues are things like not making eye contact not knowing what's in your you know not caring about your checked luggage um actually wearing a military surplus gear was one of them um because so many Hijackers were military veterans um, who often were doing it as part of protests against, you know, the war in Vietnam or or with grievances with the military. You know, the problem is that ticket agents are not trained security personnel and they are overwhelmed with often, you know, customers who are giving them a hard time and they have to process, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of customers per day. it's very difficult for them to flag passengers. Um, And so it just was not a particularly effective screening mechanism. Other than that, there was no ID requirement. There was, you know, like I said, there was no universal metal detectors. So a lot of these hijackings uh, that took place during this time period were people just with bringing pistols uh, in their coats uh, onto plane. Another part that surprised me was that there were even some flights, particularly commuter flights, where you didn't even have to purchase a ticket until you're actually on the plane, um, that you could basically just walk onto the plane. And once you were in the air, the flight attendant would come around and, you know, uh, tr- ask for your money, charge you for the ticket then. Um, so this was a lot like New York. Boston that. that's, yep. that's wild. That is wild. Yeah. So it was just kind of like a, like a commuter train that you could just... For a surcharge, you could, if you're in a rush and you were going from New York to Boston, you could just 
literally walk on the plane with no ID, nothing, and just buy the ticket on the plane. Uh, So there was a real lack of of physical security. And I think what a lot of people have noted and and what shocked me um, is that even as, you know, you were getting 30, 40 hijackings per year in American airspace, the airlines were hugely resistant to uh, improving their security. Um, And for them, it was really a matter of cost-benefit analysis. You know, they had a policy in place, the airlines, which was that hijackers just want something. This is a negotiation tactic, right? So um, what we're going to do is we're going to cooperate with everything hijackers want. So if they, and and primarily for most of this epidemic of hijackings in America, what people wanted was passage to Cuba specifically, or passage later to other countries. So their calculus, the financial calculus for the airlines was that if we just take them to Cuba, um, we pay it, we have to pay a fee to the Cuban government for, you know, fuel and, and, and some other landing fees. And then we have to comp our passengers, you know, a ticket and, and, and make them whole. But, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year at most. Way less than the cost of one plane. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think it's more like they were calculating, what if we had to hire security guards and screen every passenger? Uh, first of all, we might lose passengers. People prefer to drive. Um, this was actually, uh, I remember uh, an airline executive saying people don't want to be treated like criminal suspects when they fly. Um, so they thought that if they screened everyone, then people would stop flying. Um, and the second thing is they just didn't want to hire the personnel to do the security screening that that they calculated that was way, way more expensive than just putting up with, you know, a predetermined amount of hijackings, you know, 30, 40, what have you. So they just saw hijackings for much of this epidemic as the cost of doing business. Um, the problem was that like a lot of epidemics, the the virus mutated, so to speak, and the hijackings got progressively crazier and more dangerous, um, especially once you had people demanding um, things other than passage to other countries. You started to get people demanding money and other things of value. This is basically towards the end of 71 throughout 72, and this is when things really started to get out of hand. Um, but up until then, they really resisted any call for universal passenger screening. Yeah, and it's interesting you point out the airlines wanted the burden of security to be on the airport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the airports wanted it to be on the airlines. Yes. So this was really interesting in that um, once it became clear there would have to be universal passenger screening, um, there was a huge tiff over who was going to pay for this. So actually what the airlines really wanted was what we have now. They wanted a government agency that employed the security guards and footed the bill for everything. Um, And that the government wanted the airlines to, to, to pick up the tab. And so the compromise, so to speak, was that, you know, the airlines would have to do it but they would be able to hire third-party contractors. So they wouldn't have to actually employ security guards themselves. Um, They could just employ these companies that would basically, you know, hire people on the cheap. I mean, kind of like, kind of like those, you know, companies that provide like mall security, 
like, you know, like, so these third party contractors who would, of course, and all these contracts would go to the lowest bidder, right? So, you know, you would, an airport or airline, they would combine and they would basically say like, well, let's make people make bids and we'll just hire whatever security company has the lowest bid. How do they submit the lowest bid? Well, they hire people for basically minimum wage and they don't really train them. And uh, for those of us who remember flying prior to 9-11, you know, this is what it was. It was basically people who made minimum wage or slightly above, whose training usually consisted of watching a VHS tape. And that was about it. Um, So it was very, very poor level of security um, that came out of this compromise in which people were fighting over money. And how do you think it's played out? Well, clearly 9-11 changed the equation because the the security clearly was too porous to uh, identify these hijackers. And so now we ended up with uh, exactly what the airlines wanted in the first place, which is they're no longer responsible for security. Um, It's stricken from their bottom line. Now it's completely in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security and TSA. Yeah, that's true. It it is a lot different post 9-11. I don't know. I I struggle with that. Whose responsibility is it to keep an airplane safe? It's an interesting question. Yeah. I don't think there was like a definitive way to answer it, but I I think that the airlines are more than happy uh, to have it not be their responsibility anymore. Um, as much as, you know, people there, they know that their passengers don't like that, you know, going through TSA checkpoints and security, but they're plenty happy not to have to pay for uh, those employees. Why hijack an airplane? So there's a lot of different reasons, but generally it was done then because it was a easy way to, uh, have leverage in a negotiation, um, so I really identify in the book the three phases of this epidemic of hijacking in America. Um, the first phase was people who wanted to go to Cuba. That you have to keep in mind, you know, there's the revolution in Cuba. Um, Castro takes over, and so starting in the early 1960s, you know, there's a uh, the embargo, the, the the severing of diplomatic relations. So you can't get to Cuba another way um, very easily. You certainly can't go legally as an American. But also there was a time, this is a time when there is among a certain segment of society, like an idealization of what Cuba can be or what it will be under Castro. And, you know, a lot of people thought in their minds, like they were constructing this glorious workers paradise on this island nation, 90 miles south of Florida. And uh, they either want to go there because they know it's beyond the arm of the law or because they want to start their lives anew there or... Uh, there's a, a million different reasons. Um, they have political grievances in the U.S. and they see themselves as as fellow travelers with the communists in Cuba. So a lot of people thought, well, hey, you know, we can get to Cuba. The only way you can really do it uh, is by hijacking a plane. And because the airlines made a decision pretty early on, they were going to just go along with this. Um, it's something people kept on doing. Then you get kind of towards the end of the 1960s, um, you get uh, the second phase, which is people hijacking planes to other places. Um, I talk in the book a lot about this very famous hijacking in 1969, uh, where an Italian-born U.S. Marine named Raphael Minichiello uh, hijacks a plane uh, from the U.S. back to Italy, uh, back to Rome, actually, where he is actually greeted as a hero. Um, and the Italians refuse to prosecute him for the hijacking. So after that, you get people going to destinations other than Cuba. 
And then the third phase really starts in, in 1971 is people asking for things of value, uh, doing kind of more traditional crime, so to speak. So people asking for suitcases full of money or gold bars or, or you know, liquor or cigarettes or all sorts of things, guns. Um, Three cheeseburgers and a head start. A lot, anything that was on their mind, they would ask for. Um, so that was definitely the craziest most dangerous phase, I would say that 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 late seventy one uh, to, to late seventy two that year, you had a lot of hijackings involving people demanding money, and often people who were, you know, legitimate hardcore criminals or you know were were dangerous individuals, deranged individuals, and that's when you started having a lot more shootouts and and deaths associated with this epidemic. Do you think that third and final phase was started by dudes who were just sitting on the couch watching the hijackings on the news thinking, I don't want to go to Cuba, but you know, I could really use two hundred grand. Uh, yeah, I do think that the media and its its coverage, um, you know, reached a lot of people. And this was kind of like a heyday of evening news, uh, of, of network newscasts. And I think a lot of people did um, watch these and, you know, one person would try it and may, would almost certainly fail pretty spectacularly. But someone who was in desperate circumstances would see that and be like, well, I could, if I did that, I could figure it out. I would do a good job. And that's really, I think, that um, a common thread in a lot of these hijackings is that very few of them are successful in the conventional sense. But a lot of time people would see the failures and study them and come up with a different solution and figure out, well, that person messed up because they did X, Y, or Z. I'm going to do this and I'm going to correct that flaw in their plan. Why was it so easy to hijack a plane? I mean, that's, I, I realize, you know, there was no airport security. You could give a fake name. But if if I was hijacking trains all the time, I feel like they would, okay, we got to, this has to stop right now. Yeah. But it's not like the hijackings went on for four months. Yeah, I mean, it, Wikipedia has a great list of aircraft hijackings. I think it goes from like 1930 to today. Mm-hmm. And if you look from like, you know, 62 to 74. It's like 80% of the the hijackings. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, airport security, it was, it was very easy to do this. It was also easy because of the negotiation policy of the airlines, which was give them anything they want. Um, that was part of it. And the other part of this is that, um, you know, you could, by going to a different country, get away with it, right? Um, and also, you know, it wasn't for most of it, particularly violent like there weren't until the until the 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 last phase of it the last year or two there weren't a lot of fatalities associated with these hijackings um so i think the 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 essentially non although obviously guns were used and and there were threats made but there weren't a lot of fatalities involved and i think there was almost like a comical element to these that some people saw a grimly comic element um and people told stories about yeah i got hijacked to cuba and i spent a night at a hotel in havana and they said we couldn't bring back cigars and it became something almost amusing for for a, a fair chunk of this um it was just kind of like a weird phenomenon 
And it wasn't until that last, you know, two years or so that you started to see fatalities and violence and the threat of, of, of mass casualties is really what brought a, a final end to uh, this epidemic of hijackings. November of 71 is the first real give me some money skyjacking with Paul Sini. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that ends badly for him. He gets hit in the head yes. with an axe, yes. which I, it's gotta be bad, right? Yes. Can't yes. be awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just after that is DB Cooper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think 10 days. And he is never seen again. Mm-hmm. A handful of other people uh, tried it. And then my favorite is in, uh, I think it's July of 80 where Glenn Tripp wants I, what is it, $500,000? And the stewardess gives him three Valium in his drink. <laughs> and then by the end of it, he wants three cheeseburgers and a head start. Right, right. Which yeah. is just so hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, you know, these are not... This is a, a point that I tried to make in the book, is that a lot of people who carried out these hijackings, um, especially these kind of crazier ones that we get towards the end of the epidemic are people who are not thinking clearly. Um, They're people who often have mental health issues. Um, You mentioned Paul Sini had had serious substance abuse uh, disorder issues and that was a, a pretty bad alcoholic. You have people suffering from other mental health issues. You have people who are just going through mental health temporary mental health crises. Maybe they're having manic episodes. Um, and so they plan really particularly about certain phases of their hijacking, but don't think things through all the way. And I think that the central hijacking that I talk about in um, in Skies Belong to Us um, is one of those in which Roger Holder, this uh, you know traumatized Vietnam veteran who's facing some pretty pretty heavy legal situations um, back home in California, is kind of going through like a manic episode at that time. And I feel like made some really interesting plans about he drew up these notes and he had these all these things he was going to demand and that he had ideas about switching planes and all this stuff. Um, but he didn't think through things like fuel capacity of the plane he was hijacking so he could actually get across an ocean. Um, so you often have people who carry these, hi- these hijackings because of their mental, uh, states, uh, maybe plan parts of them really down to the, down to the nub, but overlooked key details and, and failed as a result. Yes. And some spectacularly so. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. This is the Cooper vortex. So let, let's get to DB Cooper. And mm-hmm. even though you had to, uh, only give him six sentences in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you looked into this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the, I mean, the, there's a couple of reasons I, I didn't really handle, deal, deal with Cooper too much. I think one is that I knew there was so much prior art ho- about him. And his, I mean, literally many books had been, have been, I mean, obviously have been written about him and he's a staple of, of documentary films and, and true crime series. And I felt like there wasn't really uh, anything I could add <laughs> um, to, 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 to what was already out there. I, I, I so I explicitly kind of like set out not to deal with it. I felt that I wanted to talk about hijackings that hadn't been uh, investigated by people who've 
literally dedicated years of their lives to, to, to looking into those cases. And I think the other part, and I'll, I'll just be upfront about this, is that, you know, based on my research, um, based on the personality types and, and the situations of people that were involved in the, the vast majority of these hijackings, um, I tended to think that he probably was on the same wavelength of what I just described of people who, you know, maybe make fantastic plans um, in some regards, but um, probably overlook a lot of key details um, because they're kind of like mentally unwound or going through mental health crises or what have you. Um, so I just thought it was best for me to just uh, move through that one. And I, I get why people are fascinated by it. And um I just felt like my my book, The Sky's Blowing Dust, was not the place for me to dedicate too much bandwidth to something that others have handled so expertly over the years. Yeah, and your your book really is about a different a different skyjacking, but it, it envelops all that you know, like you say, the golden age of of skyjacking. Did DB Cooper survive his jump? So my, I, I think I'm pretty upfront about my opinion. In the book is that I believe my my belief is no. Um, I, I believe that he he perished uh, in the in the act of, of of committing the hijacking. I I just believe, and and I'm no by no means an expert on this, so I feel like probably some of your listeners are maybe screaming right now as I say this, and are going to point out all the flaws in my logic. But I I just based on what I know about it and, and my conversations with people, I just feel like he didn't seem like he was an expert skydiver or, or, or parachutist. Um, and I just feel that he probably had a, a misfortune on the way down and just given the nature of, of where he jumped, it just, uh, it's a real wilderness and just wasn't, his remains just weren't located. Um, so that's my personal opinion. I know it's underwhelming and, and anticlimactic, um, but that, that is the conclude my, my amateur conclusion I came, came to in the course of my research. Come on, Brendan. I know, you it's not fun. <laughs> survived. I know. It's it, Again, I, I did not dedicate much time to looking into it. Um, I, I just, I just having researched so many of these hijackings and kind of knowing the personality type, um, that was just my conclusion. But I am open to being convinced otherwise, certainly. I, I make no claim of expertise on this subject. It's something I, I intentionally uh, did not delve too deeply into. I had many, many other things on my plate uh, to write that book. Well, the personality type it is interesting that you bring that up because he says on the plane, you know, Tina Mucklow asks him, do you have a grudge against the airline? Mm -hmm. And he responds, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. What do you think is the personality type for one of the skyjackers for money because obviously it's yep. different than take me to cuba yes well so i'll say two things so first of all one of my challenges in this book you know there's a hundred and i think it's 159 hijackings in american airspace between 61 and the end of 72 which is really the the time period covered in the book and there's hijackers all sorts of different people i mean everything from from lovelorn teenagers to 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 you know cantankerous senior citizens, uh, men, women, people of all walks of life, wealthy, poor, all races, creeds. Um, and I had to think, well, what, what unites them? What, what's a common thread here? And one thing I noticed as I dug deeper and deeper is that no matter what someone's stated motivation might be, even people who claim that they had 
political motivations that they were involved in Puerto Rican liberation or, or uh, the Black Panthers or anti-war movement. If you scratch me at the surface and really get into their personal stories, you'd find people who almost always were in the midst of personal crises and had really desperate personal circumstances. So there was almost always some story of a romance that went bad, investments that went bad, a lost job, um, a lot of problems with the military, people who'd gone AWOL, people who'd gone through court martials they deemed unjust, people who were involved in lawsuits they felt that they'd been targeted, people who had grievances. And those grievances and that desperation became all-consuming to them. And a lot of them, I think, thought, like, I need to come up with a radical solution to my problems. And skyjacking was a radical solution. It was a way to completely reinvent yourself, either by going somewhere else or getting a huge amount of money in a spectacular way. So I feel the spectacular nature of it appealed to people who were really felt lost and desperate. And this was almost symbolic of them making a radical break with their past to do this really spectacular crime. And I feel that that's an interesting quote from Cooper in about, yeah, so there may have been something personal in his life. I guess you may never know for sure, but you know, that sense of grievance and feeling of being a, a victim and feeling that you've been cornered by circumstance can become all pervasive, can kind of bleed out from a, a single trauma and become something that envelops you. So I, I think that is kind of a telling quote about the psychology of, of, of the skyjackers I studied. That's a really interesting point, a radical solution to all my problems. Yes. Yeah. And you see this actually, I've also, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Wired Magazine about um, a group of, of very young men in Minneapolis who tried to join ISIS. And I got really into, as a result of that, talking to people who specialize in de-radicalizing, you know, young men and women who become involved in these radical movements, whether it's, you know, something like ISIS or, or neo-Nazi movements. And, you know, this, this man who was a de-radicalization expert, uh, who was a, a center of that story, made a really good point. He's that, you know, one of the, what radical groups do is they basically simplify the world for you in some ways. And they say like, okay, you have this personal problem in your life. Um, it's really because it's not because of the various factors, not because of your parents being on your case, you can't get a job and all these little things going on. It's because of this one overarching narrative that some you're being oppressed, some country's oppressing you, some force is oppressing you as a, as a historical force. And your solution is to cast away your life and, and cast in your lot with this radical movement. And I feel there are similarities in the way that skyjackers' worlds narrowed down as they stewed over their personal problems. Um, so it morphed from being like, well, you know, my, my marriage fell apart and I'm drinking too much and my, my boss is on my case. And all of a sudden it, it kind of morphed into kind of like a more pervasive sense of grievance and a more pervasive sense is like, I need to do something spectacular to correct this wayward life that I'm living. And skyjacking was just in the air in the American culture at that time. And that was the obvious solution for people. What about his age? D.B. Cooper is pegged at mid to late 40s. Mm -hmm. That's an odd age for a man to be committing bold, daring crimes. Um, 
Yes, I mean it's a little bit outside the window, I think, of of, of what the uh, you know what the typical age was. But again, there were skyjackers who went all the way from sixteen into their sixties um, that I came across stories. So, although it's maybe a little bit to the right of the fat part of the bell curve for skyjacker ages, I don't think it's completely inexplicable. Good point. How about this? What is your opinion on D.B. Cooper was a false flag by the United States to alter airport security? Um, I'm just going to have to say that I don't buy it. Uh, just just uh, in all of my research, I saw no sense of any kind of master plan or any sense of that there was any kind of enough intelligence and foresight on any side of the equation to change this pretty grave security situation. And people have to keep in mind that (laughs) a whole nother year went by before there was a hijacking serious enough to actually force the government's hand. It was the government that ultimately, President Nixon ultimately had to declare the advent of universal passenger screening and things had gotten bad enough that the airlines could no longer use their lobbying might. So I, I, I just don't have not seen anything that would substantiate that there were entities within the United States government who were smart enough and proactive enough to come up with such a plan. Um, It it seems I get why people would, would, would be attracted to that kind of conspiracy theory. I mean, we want to bring logic and order to the fantastic and inexplicable. And, but, you know, time and again, there were hijackings that were, fantastic and inexplicable people that you look at the situation like why on earth would you risk everything to do this why would you and and there's many hijackings like that um when they interview the people's you know friends and neighbors after like i can't believe he did it um i think that conspiracy theories a lot of times are a way for us to grapple with the fact that people make choices that we can't possibly begin to fathom um so I'm going to say that I, I, I don't buy that. Um, nothing in my research uh, indicates that. But again, if someone wants to approach me and has, has proof they think will, will sway me, I definitely am, am open-minded, of course. Why have so many people confessed to being D.B. Cooper? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So um, I feel that because it's got its hooks, that story, uh, as much as I didn't deal with it in my book and and something I didn't really research explicitly, um, I get why it has its hooks in the American imagination. Um, I get why we can tailor um, captivating sagas and fill in the blanks to to, to tell these stories. Um, You know, part of it, I would say that Maybe people confess to being D.B. Cooper um, because that they know on some level that they're not and they'll never face legal consequences for doing so. <laughs> um, so that that might be part of it. Um, I think the other part of it is just that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves and peep, peep something that's clearly um, got a ro- romance to it and um, clearly has its grip on the imagination of millions. Um so, you know, I, I don't know enough about, I guess, the, you know, psychiatry to, to know if there might be mental health disorders that play into this. Um, but I will say, you know, that if people really had proof of doing this, there is no statute of limitations for air piracy. So if they really 
if the government really thought they'd done it, there they would be able to prosecute, and and clearly that's not been the case. So I, I will I will leave it at that. Yeah, and Cooper has a John Doe indictment. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. Yeah. No. That 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 was interesting to go back and find all these indictments that were made for all of these um, hijackings. So so for example, for the skies belong to us, the central hijacking there, there is I found the an indictment from literally the day after. Uh, in the Eastern District of New York uh, for uh, Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko. So as soon as they could, um, they would file federal charges against uh, these perpetrators, these hijackings, even if those people had uh, evaded justice. Um, And clearly, you know, because Cooper's identity was not known, of course, yeah, John Doe is is who was on that charge sheet. Um, But yes, that was a, a um, matter of course for if someone did manage to get to a different country, file the charges for air piracy. There's no statute of limitations, so you can prosecute at any time in the future. Do you have a favorite D.B. Cooper suspect? Um, you know, I have to be honest. I don't know enough about the individual suspects to... Uh, there are so many of them. <laughs> There's so many of them that the, I have to be honest, they've kind of all blurred in my mind. And again, like I just didn't pay close enough of attention to it. Um, in the course of my research, I'm probably not the person to ask, ask that question, unfortunately. Fair enough. Was Dan Cooper's bomb real? Um based on all the other cases I've seen in which the bombs were not real, including the one at the heart of the skies belonged to us, I'm going to say no. Um, you know, people have to keep in mind that because of the airline policies in place to not interfere, to just give the hijackers everything they wanted, no one ever, you know, up the ante and try to challenge these hijackers uh, and be like, wow, is your bomb real? Um in fact, you know, in The Skies Belong to Us, there was even you know, an instance where Roger Holder, on the way to Algeria, left his briefcase that can supposedly contained a bomb in the cockpit when he went to go use the laboratory. And the pilots were like, well, should we just take it? And um, they all, I mean, at least one of them who spoke to me suspected it wasn't real, but they had been instructed very clearly, never interfere. Because on the off chance that bomb is real and you pick it up and you set it off and we lose a, you know, <laughs> hundred million dollar airplane, um, that's the last thing we want. So there was very little. Once someone claimed they had a gun or a bomb, there was no. The pilots and crew were under orders to really not do anything. Now there are instances, of course, where pilots did do things um, and pilots did go against the advice and the uh, marching orders from their airlines and actually take action when they suspected that bombs were fake. Um, But that was not the policy. Um, And again, in this whole time period, I am not aware of any um, actually well-wired bombs. I'm aware of people who had dynamite, sticks of dynamite that went on airplanes, um, but not anyone who had a fully wired bomb that immediately pops to mind. I know of a lot, many, many fake bombs, but not really real wired bombs. Yeah, it's tough to call someone out on their bluff yeah. when you're at 15,000 feet. A- absolutely. And so, and again, you know, what I found in, in interviewing, uh, you know, retired flight crew members um, from this era is that the level of professionalism was really astounding. 
is that these are people who took tremendous pride in their work, but also their being part of a team and being part of companies that they felt real loyalty and allegiance to. In a way, I think maybe flight crews don't in this era of aviation. Um, and so I feel that they were generally pretty reluctant to go against what they've been taught, which is to comply with everything the hijackers say for the safety of the passengers. All the old time airline employees I've talked to all said the same thing. It was a great job. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was a great job. I loved working there. This is one thing that made at least the early phases of reporting for me such a pleasure is that, you know, a lot of the first interviews I got were with um, flight attendants and pilots who've been involved in the hijacking that that's at the heart of the book. And what I found out is that they all stay in touch with each other. So once I found one, they all are still friends because they all share this memory of working for these airlines during this very romantic and very different age of commercial aviation. And so they were all friends. And so I'd interview one flight attendant. She'd be like, oh, I still talk to X, Y, or Z. Here's her phone number. So a lot of that initial research was really uh, pretty simple and straightforward because they all kept in touch with each other because they all treasure these memories and treasure being part of this alumni network. Uh, from, it's a fantastic time in their lives and actually sounded like a fantastic job, like um, in a way that I feel that being a pilot or flight attendant now is a, a bit more a bit more drudgery and, and a bit less pride, I think, in, in, in the craft. And certainly from the passenger experience, you know, the stories you hear about, you know, unlimited champagne and cocktails on, you know, short haul flights and, and Western Airlines, the the airline um, at the heart of the skies belonged to us that had the, the flight hijacked, you know, their signature was that they serve champagne on all flights. And in fact, even on an hour and a half or two hour flight, they would serve you a steak. So <laughs> it, it was definitely a different a different era of jet travel. Yeah, it, even you know, you talk about the gals had to wear like short mm-hmm. skirts. Their yeah. weight had to be below a certain number, and yeah. their lipstick had to be done, and all that. And you think, boy, you certainly couldn't have any sort of rules like that uh, for the gals that work at the auto parts store or anything now. <laughs> but yeah. When I talked to them, they loved that job. Mm-hmm. And I think for Cooper, especially when people start to talk about, oh, maybe the crew was in on it. Um, these were people who loved their jobs. Yeah. Being an airline pilot was very prestigious. It paid real well. Um, and then same for being a stewardess. Mm-hmm. Those gals love the job. And for a woman in, in 68 and 72... That's a really good paying job. Yes. So it was, these were often um, young, uh, unmarried, you know, unmarried. I, fe- I, f- I feel in fact, if memory serves that it was a stipulation a lot of the time that the, that they had to be unmarried um, and it afforded them a chance to travel the world, that it, that it was really easy to use those jobs, to hop on flights, to fly standby, to go all over. So in speaking to these women, a lot of times, you know, they would be like, I was 22, 23, and I was going to, you know, Rome on my weekends. And, you know, they felt they were really close to um, their their colleagues, other flight attendants, other stewardesses. Um, yeah, they all had very rosy memories of, of this time in their lives, for sure. Um, I, I, that came through. 
Um, there were a lot of marriages to pilots, a lot of first marriages to pilots, at least. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it, it was a very interesting, it was very interesting to uh, get to know that culture. It was a very interesting culture that I, that I was not aware of had existed. I only remember, you know, a more utilitarian approach to flying. Um, I don't remember this kind of uh, glory days uh, of tra- air travel being luxurious and also people just taking real pride in, in, in the job and, and really enjoying it in a certain way. I think it's, it's become a much more utilitarian vibe to what goes on in that industry now. Oh, 100%. There was a show that my wife used to watch a few years ago called Pan Am mm-hmm. with Christina Ricci. Right, I remember it. Great show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, now I'm totally off topic thinking about Christina Ricci. Where were we at here? <laughs> no, we were just we were just talking about um, you know, do people you know, some people think that flight crews may have been involved in inside job with Cooper and you made the excellent point of like that doesn't fit with how flight crews and flight attendants thought about themselves. And so that's a conspiracy theory that doesn't really if you if you know people who who worked in that industry doesn't really gel with the reality of how people felt about their employment at that time. Yeah, and people who have a great job that they love generally don't tend to commit bold crimes against the company they work for. Yeah, and I will say I never, and I, I you know, got deep into scores and scores of hijackings. I cannot recall ever coming across one that involved any kind of inside job because you didn't need to have that because there was no security there was no security or very little security and the airlines were instructed to do whatever you said so there wasn't really a point in having uh, an inside person there was no advantage there was no secret security edge you could get um by 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 knowing how the airlines operated that's a great point why why do you need the inside advantage yeah when no, you can walk on the plane with a shotgun dynamite and your own parachute and somehow no one notices. Yep, exactly. There was there was really no reason to to, to have to. There was no special invol- uh, knowledge involved. All you needed was um, moxie. <laughs> Do you think the DB Cooper case will ever be solved? I mean, it's looking more and more like it's not going to be solved. And, and this is um, something that I ran into. You know, when you're doing these historical projects. Um, you know, it's really critical that you have access to people who were alive um, and involved in, in, in pivotal uh, moments of the drama and now are, are at an age where their memories are still sharp, where their minds are still sharp and they're, they're still alive. And the farther we get away from that, the harder it gets. And we're, we're getting pretty far away. We're going to have 50th anniversary next year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so people who were you know, in their late 20s are going to be in their late 70s that might have information. And so, you know, you're winnowing down the field of primary sources, your your primary sources you do have. Um, Unfortunately, memories do become a little bit hazier with age. Um, So it becomes more and more difficult over time um, to to, to solve a, a case of that nature. I hope so. I, I hope that you never know and, and things can happen. And it, it does seem like something that would be within the realm of the solvable. Um, you would think that even if this person, as I believe, died on the way down, that someone miss, missed him. Um, someone, you know, realized that he didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner the next year. Uh, and there might be something in someone's attic somewhere that could be ironclad proof. But yeah, it is frustrating when 
time passes on and, and you know the case grows colder and colder um so that that certainly is frustrating the the march of time and how it impacts our ability to solve historical mysteries i i want this thing solved to my satisfaction mm-hmm. i want to read a book like the skies belong to us yeah. that tells me you know in crazy detail about the planning of this about yeah. the execution about what happened when his boots landed on the ground? Mm-hmm. I just, I don't want it to be solved. And then most of it is still a mystery. I mean, like with, with Cooper, it, it only happens for five hours. Yeah. There is zero story before the hijacking mm-hmm. and zero after. So I, I would posit that the fact that it hasn't emerged, there, there's two ways to look at this, right? So one is that it's some grand black bag, black ops situation where everything was covered up by people who are part of some deep state or what have you. And that's the reason it hasn't been solved. Um, But I think Occam's razor would favor the perhaps um, explanation that he was probably someone who was uh, really in a difficult spot in his life, uh, probably had, had had a lot of things go wrong, was as we discussed before, was cornered by circumstance and desperate and overwhelmed with grievance and therefore didn't have people who necessarily missed him when he disappeared. Maybe he's someone who disappeared on people for much of his life, someone who'd gone from relationship to relationship, job to job. We all know the type. People are unreliable and unstable. Um, And that's why when he didn't, there was no Thanksgiving to show up to the next year. Uh, because he wasn't that close to people. So, and that's why if he, as I believe, ended up impaled on a fir tree <laughs> somewhere in the Columbia Valley and, and buzzards ate his flesh, that's why no one really missed him the next year. That's a, a less romantic or, or, or less spectacular or less interesting explanation, but I think it's probably the one that that seems to me more likely than than having dozens of people involved on the government side and they all never muttered a word of it and and made all the documentation disappear. Um, But I I agree with you. It's hard when you really do love a story and it means something to you and you just don't have that satisfaction or resolution. And in some ways, I feel that way about Kathy Kirko. Um, I definitely, it, it pains me that that is the open chapter from the book and that I had to, that I couldn't provide my readers with more than educated guesses. So I I, I get the feeling of dissatisfaction that comes with that when you've invested so much of yourself into a story and you just can't, you can't wrap up that story in a way that's going to leave you feeling satisfied. So I get why that's painful. um, And I get why then people keep on searching for the truth and searching for an explanation, but um, there's certainly no guarantee that it's going to be found, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, I've said it on the show a million times, but my worst nightmare is that we find out who D.B. Cooper was, but we don't get to know the story because he died in 1997. Right. Right. So yeah, that I would rather stay unsolved than find out Oh yeah, it was actually uh, Todd Jones, mm-hmm. and he died in in nineteen ninety seven. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, the thing is that um, no matter what, the odds are that he planned this alone. So, um, 
wanting to know that what went into the planning. I mean, I was fortunate, I mean, very fortunate in that I was able to interview the person who made the plans of the hijacking at the center of my book. So I do know, I I have what you, I'm sure, dream of, which is a step-by-step guide and, and understanding of the thought process and often lack of thought that went into planning this spectacular hijacking. Um, but, you know, I, I found that, first of all, most of these hijackings were planned pretty hastily. Um, so, you know, if this was, and let's just, we, we can hypothesize, um, I would hypothesize that probably D.B. Cooper, uh, whoever he was, probably saw a news report about Paul Joseph Sinney's failed hijacking, failed attempt to parachute out with the money in Canada, um, and thought to himself, like so many other hijackers, you know what, I, I, that's a good idea. He just, he messed it up, but I can do that. I can do that. And then over the next nine days or eight or nine days, made a pretty hasty plan um, that he probably focused on some details very particularly. Uh, obviously, he did some things very well, was very clever about certain aspects of it but probably didn't think it through the entire way and probably didn't have all the requisite knowledge that would enable one to pull off such a high-risk endeavor. Sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, With missing people, we talk about that a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no missing persons report for someone who looks and fits the description of Dan Cooper, Mm -hmm. but... To play devil's advocate, um, how many people did you know growing up who their story was, my dad went for a pack of cigarettes and never came back? That's not a missing person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. And, th- and that would fit with a lot of people, these damaged individuals with mental health issues um, who just can't maintain relationships, can't you know, hold employment for whatever reason, um, because of their personalities, their mental health issues. So yeah, they're, they're, that the lack of a missing persons uh, report for someone fitting the description. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Is not any kind of indicative of of, any, of anything whatsoever. Um, there are certainly, yes, I certainly know those individuals who, unfortunately, a a, a parent, um, you know, vanished on them, and they don't really know what happened to them so that that is a unfortunately a tragic feature uh, of american family life well i wouldn't even say men i'd say if mom disappears someone's gonna Mm -hmm. say what you know where'd mom go Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. especially in late 60s early 70s sure dad can disappear sure and we're not filing a missing persons report for dad we just know he's not he's not coming back right and if you're a 48 year old man Mm -hmm. In 1970, I went to report my 48-year-old dad missing. Mm-hmm. I think they would laugh at me. Well, does your dad have a history of mental illness? He's, mm-hmm. he's 48. He makes his own decisions. Right. I don't think there was a lot of that, let's be concerned about missing persons who are men. I think that sort of went by the wayside then. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough specifically about about that, but I mean, that does sound right to me. And I will say, like, I was struck in, you know, studying the early 70s um, for this project that, yeah, there were very different norms um, in a lot of aspects of society. So that that does ring true to me, what you just said. Well, there's Max Gunther has a book about D.B. Cooper where he says it's this one suspect who 
was a big fan of his some articles he wrote about basically how to ditch your family, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I would love to open up. Um, I don't know what the equivalent men's magazine today would be, GQ or something. Mm-hmm. And there's an article about how to disappear from your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love that that was the main article in the men's magazine in, in 70. Well, I will say I'm going to give a shout out to um, a good friend of mine and, and fantastic journalist named Evan Ratliff, um, who wrote a piece for Wired magazine, uh, maybe about a, a, about a decade ago now. Um where he actually did disappear, where that was a challenge where, you know, the question was in this age uh, of, you know, pervasive digital usage and we leave a paper trail everywhere through credit cards and and, and the, the use of the internet and everything, you know, can someone disappear? And so he basically made a project where he just like disappeared and they, they challenged readers to find him. Um, so he basically erased his identity and reinvented himself, and um, it became like a huge scavenger hunt for Wired readers, where they would drop clues about it. So that's worth uh, for for people to look up in the Wired archives. Uh, fantastic piece by one of my favorite writers, Evan Ratliff. Evan Ratliff, I am going to check that out because that actually sounds like something I'd be really interested to. Oh yeah, no, uh, Evan Ratliff, you know, um, how to disappear? I think should should bring it up for you on the old Google machine, and it's a uh, it's a classic, um, a classic of the genre. All right, Brendan. What is it that we haven't covered yet? What ha, what did you want me to ask you that I haven't asked you? Well, I just want to uh, mention one thing. Um, there's one pivotal hijacking that I go into detail in the book um, that I just want to, to to raise for people that because it is it really changed everything in, in American aviation. Uh, you mentioned this conspiracy theory, this kind of I think wild conspiracy theory that this was somehow cooked up by the U.S. government, the Cooper hijacking to force the airline's hand on aviation security. Well, a year later, in November of 72, there was an incident that did change everything and did force the the airline's hand. And that was a hijacking Southern Airways Flight 49, where these three men hijacked a plane, um, I believe it was out of Mississippi, if memory serves. Um, and they, they took it to Detroit, and they demanded $10 million dollars. Um, they were taking it, take, take it to Detroit. They demanded $10 million. Um, and I'd go into this in great detail in the book and your listeners can look it up. So I won't bore people with the too many details. But what happened is the, they, they, the airline couldn't get the money and there were lots of the hijackers got drunk and there was bad weather and lots of things happened. And so, you know, midway through this hijacking, these uh, the hijackers asked that the plane be taken to Tennessee to the Knoxville area in Tennessee, and they started circling Oak Ridge uh, National Laboratory, which um, has a nuclear reactor, uh, uranium-235 reactor, I believe. And they threatened and said, if we don't get the money, if you don't finally give us the money, we're going to crash this plane into Oak Ridge, into the nuclear reactor. Um, and so this was the moment, and obviously they didn't do that. Um, the, you know, the airline did come up with, I think, $2 million, which is enough to pacify these guys. Crazy things happen. People should read the book and find out. But this was the moment when it really dawned on the airlines in particular that this had gotten to the point where there are people talking about using airplanes as weapons of mass destruction. And this was the moment they realized, like, if that were to happen, the liability issues involved would just destroy our industry. 
like just don't forget about the fact we might turn part of Tennessee into, you know, a, a wasteland. <laughs> um, the lawsuits and everything that would ensue would would literally bankrupt the the American aviation industry. And so, when President Nixon shortly thereafter mandated the advent of universal passenger screening to begin on January fifth, nineteen seventy three. The airlines who'd used their considerable political muscle for for years to stave off exactly that did not resist. They turned their attention to the issue of who would pay for it because they realized that we can no longer, things have gotten so crazy, we can no longer um, avoid checking everyone's bag and making them all walk through metal detectors. So it's it's that hijacking, I think, is the pivotal one in shaping the uh, what American aviation is today in terms of security. People don't like it when you threaten to crash a plane into a nuclear reactor? No, they don't. <laughs> uh, but I think it's interesting it's the liability issues that, that, that really got to the airlines because they knew that if, if they were sued and people said you should have done something to prevent these people from doing this, um, you know, that would be, be truly be ruinous um, for them. And I'm trying to remember your book now, but that was the one where they started drinking and they did. Yes. They, they were got boring. real bad. Yeah. They, they, they drank all the liquor in the plane and they were, they were completely intoxicated for, for vast stretches. And, and they made some very poor choices as a result of their intoxication. Last question. Who, who was D.B. Cooper? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to just say that it was someone who had had a very rough several years prior to the incident, and like all almost all the hijackers I studied, uh, had a lot of issues and had decided that he was so cornered by circumstance and so on the skids that he needed to opt for an incredibly spectacular way of recreating himself. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have uh, the chops to pull off such an insanely risky um, maneuver. And therefore, as I say in the book, uh, I believe he is in a, a soul who ended up being picked apart by buzzers on top of a fir tree in the Columbia, Va- Columbia Valley. But I don't have a name for you, unfortunately. <laughs> but the name he did give, Dan Cooper, mm-hmm. do you believe that was an homage to the comic book? Yeah, I, this is this this does ring a bell. I do remember this. Um, tough for me to say. Um, you know, I will say that there is a certain dreaminess to hijacking. So you might run across people who are into works of fiction and, and imaginary lives. So I wouldn't put it past them. I just think it's too much of a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, if I if I committed a crime where I robbed a bank and then flew away, mm-hmm. and the name I had on my deposit slip was Clark Kent, right? That's a bit on the nose. Yeah, yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, no, that's that's certainly a possibility. So I, you know, it's uh, it would be too much for me to say like, well, all hijackers were were idiots. Um, clearly, a lot of them had some chops and and they were you know viable human beings who had pasts and interests and all that stuff but a lot of times or almost all the time there are people who also had made poor decisions in their lives and had often mental health issues um that were left untreated and felt cornered by circumstance so in the act of of hijacking these planes they might have done things that were clever um but overall generally they uh were not quite clever enough to pull it off. 
All right. If people want to harass you, mm-hmm. uh, is there somewhere they can do that? Yeah, sure. Um, the easiest way to find me, I mean, I, I, I'm a very quick Google search away for anyone, but I'm on Twitter at just uh, Brennan Kerner um, is one way. And my email address is on my Twitter profile. Um, they can certainly also check out my archives on wired.com. Just uh, search for my name and I have a page there with a a bunch of my recent work, which has all been kind of a true crime in the wired world, uh, generally. Um, and I've got a previous book as well called Now the Hell Will Start um, that people can look up at the bookstore of their choosing. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on, Brendan. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I had a great time. If you're listening to the show right now, you really would enjoy The Skies Belong to Us. It's a great story, and it gives you a lot of insight into what air travel and uh, the political climate was like at that time. Follow Brendan on Twitter or shoot him an email. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. Is there a theory you want us to cover or a suspect we don't know about yet? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter at Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, why don't you go ahead and leave us a review? Thank you to Brendan Corner for taking time out of his evening to talk about 50-year-old skyjackings with me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for taking time out of his evening to produce a show about 50-year-old hijackings. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.